Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Miranda Melcher and I'm one of the hosts on the channel. And I'm very interested today to be interviewing both of the authors um, of a book that makes quite an interesting claim. The book addresses the idea that oligarchy is a threat to the American Republic. When too much economic and political power is concentrated in too few hands, we risk losing the, quote, Republican form of government that the Constitution requires. The book argues that today, courts enforce the Constitution as if it had almost nothing to say about this threat. However, our two authors today argue in their book titled An Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, published by Harvard University Press in 2022, they make a bold call to reclaim an American tradition that argues that the Constitution imposes a duty on government to fight oligarchy, and ensure broadly shared wealth. So doctors Joey Fishkin and Willie Forbath are here to tell us about this revolutionary retelling of constitutional history. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. So I was wondering if to start off, you could each introduce yourselves, a bit of your academic background, and then explain to us how you came together to write this book. Sure. So uh, this is, I'm Joey Fishkin. I um, my background is really in political theory. That's what my PhD was in. But I've been a law professor in the U.S. for the last ten years at the University of Texas, uh, where Willie was uh, my colleague, and just recently I've moved to UCLA. Um, and uh, Willie and I started in on this project thinking we would just write a short article about ideas of economic opportunity and equality in American history that seemed to us to have more constitutional dimensions than most people thought. And of course, that short article, uh, many, many years later, uh, has now turned into this, um, this book. I'm Willie Forbath. My background complements Joey, but isn't the same. I have a PhD in American studies. My work um, has been as a legal, social, constitutional historian. Although, like Joey, I work chiefly in the law school here at University of Texas. Um, and as Joey says, we, we found one another over a decade ago um, as sort of potential collaborators on, on a project that, that knitted together work that, that each of us had done across um, the spheres of constitutional thought and history among social movements and political actors as well as courts and um, the question of economic inequality and opportunity as 
as constitutional themes that have largely been forgotten. So um, it's helpful that you've both sort of introduced yourselves in this idea of theory, um, because you center your initial discussion of the book in traditions of debates, um, and your argument stands on the, quote, democracy of opportunity tradition, and that understanding of political economy economy and theory. Um, So to help us, to help situate us and your argument in the book, can you summarize the main arguments of this democracy of opportunity tradition and how it lays a foundation for the arguments of your book? Sure. Uh, maybe I'll just start in and, and we can add the, the three core arguments that we see as part of this tradition are first, the anti-oligarchy argument that gives the book its title, which is that we're trying to have a constitution of a republic, not Uh, an aristocracy or an oligarchy. And so you can't have too much economic and political power concentrated in too few hands. The second, which is not unrelated, is that you need a broad, open middle class that everyone has a reasonable opportunity to join because that middle class is the social base of Republican government. And then the third idea is a principle of inclusion uh, that certainly at the start of this country and of this tradition was not always present in the tradition, but when this tradition really comes into its own in reconstruction, this principle of inclusion along racial lines and eventually along other group-based lines as well uh, becomes central to it. And our argument is that this Uh, tradition has stretched in one way or another and through many complexities and conflicts from the early Republic all the way through most of our history, through the mid-20th century, Uh, and that it functions as a tradition in the sense that people are drawing on what came before as they adapt it for the economic circumstances of their own time. But I think part of what's important about this this tradition, just to foreground it, you already used the phrase political economy, uh, a phrase that is coming back into use now and that we are excited to you know, help do our part to push back into use. Um, but th- that's really what the subject matter of this tradition is. People thought and people who were in this tradition and people who are opposed to it, actually, uh, in other more libertarian traditions through at various points in American history, both, you know, both sides of many debates thought that the Constitution spoke to political economy, uh, which is to say, not just economics, as we think of it today, but the kind of broader way of thinking about both economics and politics as um as intertwined, that uh, was kind of the main way of thinking about these questions that today often read as economic questions, but in the 19th century and, and even earlier would have read to uh, anyone who, who thought about them as questions of uh, political economy. Interesting. Okay, that, that's a really helpful grounding. And as you said, kind of the idea of political economy is kind of coming back in as well. Um, So it's helpful to sort of showcase the interdisciplinary nature of the book, that it is obviously thinking about the constitution and law in a lot of detail, um, but that there are other equally important elements 
to it. Um, and so to sort of look at the historical arc that you show in the book, um, you talk about, quote, touchstones of the democracy of opportunity tradition that developed out of the constitutional battles from the Declaration of Independence to the ratification of the Constitution in 1789 to ground, now that we sort of have a grounding in kind of what are the theoretical aspects that we're drawing on, can you tell us about what these touchstones were in the historical narrative? So in the, <clears throat> in the sort of era you, you flagged in the period from the revolution onward through the framing and ratification of the Philadelphia Constitution of 1787, the moments that we highlight include the, the crafting of the earliest state constitutions, because there one finds right smack in the texts of these first constitutions, which were also, of course, the world's first popular, popularly ratified constitutions, express provisions not only um, forbidding aristocracies and titles of nobility, but also squarely calling for a broad distribution of, of wealth as a precondition for Republican self-rule. Um, so the, the, these constitutions reflected a widely, widely shared premise that, you know, didn't simply embrace famous radicals like Tom Paine or in more complex ways, Thomas Jefferson, but the whole gamut of um, colonial revolutionaries, even figures who were hardly firebrands like Noah Webster, who became famous for his dictionary, um, wrote at, you know, and exhorted his fellow colonial rebels about how indispensable it was that there be a broad distribution, even what he would call roughly an equality of property, because only an equality of property would ensure an equality of political authority amongst the people. And of course, it's essential to underscore that when these characters talked about the people and talked about a broadly shared equality of, of property holding, they were talking about white guys um, and most definitely not either people of color or women. Um, although the universalist egalitarian language of the declaration famously helped right fuel an abolitionist movement in that era and some of the important revolutionaries and some of the important revolutionary lawyers were also abolitionists but the mainstream of this tradition was one that right very self-consciously said we must craft our constitutions to thwart oligarchy and that also, of course, included provisions against primogenitor and entail, which basically were inherited English measures that aimed to secure large estates in the eldest son of landed families. So they, people like Webster thought that simply in virtue of having measures, constitutional measures um, and statutory ones against um, primogenitor and entail, one would 
over time secure a broader and broader distribution of property. And to some extent, economic historians have found that that was true. But many of the revolutionaries went much further, including Jefferson and his draft constitution for Virginia. So that at least is a sketch of some of the touchstones that we might find in the revolutionary era. Joey, do you want to add anything? No, that, that sounds great. I mean, I, I think there's there's so much here to go through. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let Willie's answers. Yeah. There, there's a lot of detail in the book. Um, so we're very much doing a broad brushstroke sort of um, endeavor here. Um, and so I wanted to ask about so how we kind of look at those fights from that period, because obviously it's one thing about what the people then thought they were arguing about, but also how that's been interpreted since. Um, and it seems like today when constitutional scholars read and write about the fights in that period, um, whether it's about some of the topics you've already raised or some of the other ones in the books, like tariffs or internal improvements, they see it very much as a battle between states' rights and the limits of national power. Um, and a lot of this ends up centering around slavery. Um, but you argue that this is only part of the battle, that the, that focusing this on slavery um, ignores the aspects of constitutional debate that were about national distribution of opportunity, wealth, and power broadly. What kind of political economy would best serve the rights and standing of working people, it's specifically generally white working men. Um, so why then, can, can you help us understand this argument that it's, it's not just about slavery, there's a kind of a bigger question here about constitutional political economy? Sure. And I wouldn't necessarily say bigger than slavery, you know, because mm-hmm. obviously the clash over slavery, what, which was the central clash of American politics in the antebellum period, you know, obviously, was also a, a clash about political economy, whether we were going to have a society of, you know, plantation oligarchs uh, who were going to, you know, rule over all these enslaved people, uh, that seemed to uh, its opponents to be completely incompatible with Republican government. And I do think that that was, you know, a, a conflict about political economy in a way that we don't always appreciate, given that it was so much uh, a conflict about you know, race and slavery itself. And, uh, but anyway, the, the political economy dimensions of slavery aside, I guess part of what we want to do in, in that part of the book is show how much of what was, um, uh, being argued on both sides of many of the major debates in antebellum politics, which arguments that look today, like they do, wouldn't have anything to do with the constitution were constitutional arguments at the time and were arguments about political economy. So when you had um, the Jacksonians uh, trying to most famously fight against the national bank and building up of kind of national financial power in New York, what they were trying to do was um, prevent what they saw as the kind of concentration of money 
economic authority and power, and ultimately it would inevitably be political power in the growing economic centers. Um, and, you know, the Jacksonians were there to represent the hinterlands that were not, uh, that were not benefiting uh, from, they thought from, you know, the sort of building up of wealth uh, in in New York and from the tariffs that would uh, help build kind of nascent industry. The industry was also not going to be where they were. They would rather have low tariffs so that other countries would have low tariffs uh, and would buy agricultural products and all this sort of thing. So um, for the Jacksonians, there were there were stakes in what it meant to um, have a, uh, paper money system and a kind of growing financial authority in New York that, uh, they thought this would concentrate power in the hands of too few. And instead they needed equal protection, equal protection for the many, for the ordinary kind of white working farmers of, of, uh, and other working people, of uh, the country. And what's interesting about the equal protection language that was central to the constitutional Jacksonian side of the argument is that there was not yet an equal protection clause in the constitution. (laughs) Uh, But the Jacksonians thought that um, that the sort of underlying principles of free institutions and of kind of Republican government demanded that we have something like this equal protection. And meanwhile, the other side of the great debates, the Whigs, Henry Clay and the Whigs who were trying to use public policy to build uh, a stronger kind of uh, industries and tariffs and all those things, they were making constitutional arguments too. And they were making the first versions of a kind of argument that we find important throughout the book that kind of stretches through this tradition uh, through time, which was they were arguing that the constitution isn't just a set of restraints or a kind of constraint on what government can do, that the constitution also imposes duties, that when the Constitution lays out these powers, the powers to, uh, you know, for example, to to uh, impose tariffs, but more generally, the powers that would uh, to spend money and do internal improvements for general welfare, the Whigs thought that um, that these powers were a kind of trust that the states had surrendered some of their powers to the to the national government, and the national government had a duty to uh, execute those powers uh, in a way that would ultimately build the right kind of political economy for the United States, which was, by their lights, one that would kind of lift all of the uh, boats, to use a little bit of a... Um, you know, uh, anachronistic metaphor, uh, all of the, all of the people, they thought, unlike the Jacksonians, uh, they thought that policies like building internal improvements and raising money through tariffs and having a bit more of a national government would actually, uh, help build the broad middle class that kind of all of the sides agreed was constitutionally important to protect and build. So I guess what's interesting to us 
you know, in this in these early debates is is partly what was agreed on, which was in effect that the Constitution had something to say about political economy, and that um, and that part of what the Constitution, if it was going to be a Republican Constitution, needed uh, to do was make sure that there would be this broad middle class and not um, and not an oligarchy. Willie, do you want to add anything to that already great answer? <laughs> Just a couple of points, sure, as long as, as this is a, a somewhat leisurely walk through the book. Um, but I'll try to be a bit terse. Um, so where you started was, was with the observation that a great many historians and, and constitutional studies scholars see the um, antebellum period as one in which states' rights arguments were a stalking horse for protecting slavery, that the worry um, with assertions of national versus state power on the part of so many spokespeople for the Democrats and the Jacksonians was that that any such assertion right threatened to, um, to create precedent for the um, national government to outlaw, say, the interstate trade, not not the international, but the interstate trade in slavery and otherwise touch slavery in a way that um, injured the interests of the slaveholders. And so I want to simply underscore that that Joey and I don't skirt the ways in which the Jacksonian party was a coalition, a very sprawling coalition, which um, welded together um, hard hit sort of hard scrabble farmers with um, with slaveholders with with um, the plantation elite of the South and um, and their their uh, and 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 it was only after the emergence of an anti-slavery party in the form of Lincoln's Republican Party um, that that you know, that particular alliance began to fray. Um, but in the, in the same moment when indeed these states' rights arguments say against internal improvements as something the national government could do, had, you know, an inescapable connection to slavery, they also chimed with the deeply felt insight that state and local government were more accessible to ordinary you know, working people, farmers and mechanics, as they were called, and that those were the organs of government that most often attended more to the economic condition of um, small producers and working people. And say, for example, these were the sites where even though the U.S. Constitution um, outlawed debtor relief laws fairly squarely, these state and local governments persevered in enacting literally scores and scores. Some accounts would say 200 or so of these debtor relief laws and various kinds of state measures that were squarely in the interests of debtors and against those of creditors. So that there, there was, um, and one of the things that the planter elite and these working people often had in common in this era was a hostility toward banks, even though the Jacksonian sort of entrepreneurial Jacksonians began creating state banks that weren't that different from the national bank they afford. There was running through this complex coalition a, you know, a there were various political economies 
all of them thought of themselves as constitutional, and some of them were quite radical by any standard in respect of distribution, if not in respect of race, where they were appalling. Um, you get the picture. That would be the only you know, complication I would add to Joey's account. We like complications. We're historians. So thank you for adding that. Um, so moving then from the antebellum period to Reconstruction, you argue in the book that, quote, Reconstruction was a case study in the central insight of constitutional political economy, that economics and politics are inextricably linked, and that a Republican constitution requires a Republican political economy to sustain it, and vice versa. Can you explain why you see this coming out so clearly in the Reconstruction area? Sure, I can pick that up. What we're, what we're flagging there is the insight Reconstruction, just in case we have historians and other scholars from far afield of U.S. history, from far away from U.S. history, Reconstruction is the moment after the U.S. Civil War in which the Northern Union government is setting about um, reconstructing, as the Republican Party put it, the South. Um, President Johnson, who succeeded Lincoln, insisted on calling it restoration, which captures some of the tensions over the terms on which the South would be readmitted into the Union. And the Reconstruction Project was one which saw that it wasn't enough to give the recently emancipated slaves of the South, um, to give the Black South um, civil rights that there needed to be a more thoroughgoing um, reconstruction of the South's political economy. So, for example, Thaddeus Stevens, the great radical Republican leader in the House, um, said, "You, you can't have a safe republic in communities of nabobs and serfs. You had to break up the, not only the political power of the old as they called them, plantation oligarchy or slaveocracy. You had to break up not only their political power by enfranchising the ex-slaves and the poor whites of the South in order to um, gain them a measure of real citizenship, but you also had to break up the old distribution of land um, so that even the moderate Republicans who wanted no part of confiscating all the big plantations in the way that Thaddeus Stevens did, nonetheless were um, intent on at least grabbing hold of the public lands and the abandoned plantations and other available land to distribute to the ex-slaves in the hope of creating a different kind of social and economic order. And the argument about why this is inseparable from why a Republican political economy such as this is inseparable from a Republican government goes back to one of the premises of this tradition that we've already sketched, namely that in order to have a safe Republic, in Stevens's words, you needed um, a mass citizenry who enjoyed a real measure of material independence and not just political equality, otherwise willy-nilly um, the old plantocracy, the old oligarchy of the South would use its control over the economic lives of the ex-slaves and the poor whites of the South to 
um, thwart their political freedom. And I'll just add, I mean, that is basically, uh, people who know this story know that's basically what happened. Um, and, you know, part of this, part of this project, part of this part of our project is a story about what the radical Republicans saw that not all of the Republicans necessarily, uh, you know, always were able to enact into national legislation. There were more radical reforms of land, especially uh, that that might have been needed. But our story is about the the kind of principled arguments that were getting made. And I will say, you know, it, it's striking how the uh, the mainstream of the Republican Party over the course of Reconstruction comes around to the realization that you're going to need federal guarantee of black voting rights um, if you're going to keep this going. And, And part of how I think the Republican Party at the time, even the mainstream of it, understood what they were doing that I think is is interesting and maybe important for us today and not always recognized is they thought that, you know, how they were going to effectuate the constitutional changes that they were putting into effect. It was not just by we will uh, ratify these amendments and then courts will enforce them. You know, that was not how they thought about what they were doing. Their plan was we will put these amendments into effect and then we, the Congress, will stay in Republican Party hands and loyal, you know, Republicans who favor the union um, with the uh, black voters of the South who we will need to keep, you know, to, to keep voting us into power, um, as well as, uh, you know, the the various Republicans of of elsewhere in the nation we will maintain a political majority for these constitutional ideals. And that's how we will sustain it. You know, it was really through politics. That's why the Reconstruction Amendments, if you look at their text, they all include these enforcement clauses empowering Congress to enforce this by appropriate legislation. So there's a kind of political constitutional vision of how um, it is that the constitution is going to intervene in political economy over time and is going to protect both the economic and the political rights of uh of black people uh in the south and you know i think the way that that story ends up unraveling kind of uh illustrated very well that it was right that you that you sort of need both and that if you um you know, if you lose uh, one or the other of the vote or the economic uh, foundations for a kind of independent middle class uh, black citizenry, uh, you're going to end up losing both, actually. And that's what happened. I'd only add, um, again, in the spirit of a leisurely walk, uh, that there are two important many important um, precepts that we try to retrieve from this reconstruction moment. And um, one is what Joey just sketched, this, this very, very, very clear and plain emphasis that it's, it's Congress and not the courts 
that will implement this new constitutional order and these new amendments. Um, but beyond that, to, to, to reach back to another point Joey made earlier, um, this is where the old older antebellum Whig language of legislative or congressional or governmental duties came in, into its own um, in the service of the ex-slaves of, of, of the South. This is where um, the, the Reconstruction era framers, right, the framers of the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendment um, would say, we have a duty to enact these various kinds of social provision, education, right, land, um, protection for the freedmen and freed women. Um, and this is interesting for us as constitutional scholars, uh, again, which may be remote for many of your listeners, because today's Supreme Court and the U.S. Supreme Court throughout its by now long Right, sort of aegis under conservative justices has sort of repeatedly proclaimed that the 14th Amendment, the Keystone Amendment of these three amendments, right, imposes no affirmative duties on government, that the 14th Amendment is a charter of negative liberty. It doesn't impel state or national government even to protect the bodily safety of the citizenry, let alone um, provide some minimum measure of material support of any kind. And what's so striking when you return to the congressional record, when you can return to the archives, is that it is plain as day that these characters thought quite the contrary, that this amendment does, and the 13th as well, does impel Congress and the federal government to provide protection and all kinds of provision. Thank you for explaining again. Um, I think it's quite helpful to have the ability to look at what we think those things mean now, um, what we think they thought then, and then also what the evidence shows people did think then. So thank you both for untangling that in the complicated reconstruction period. Um, I'm going to challenge you both to continue this level of e explanation. Um, obviously, you've already done it in much more depth in the book, um, but we're doing really well so far explaining it out loud. So let's keep going. Um, moving historically through to the 1880s and 1890s, um, you talk about how industrial expansion, industrial change um, meant that the economic conditions of the sort of everyday worker um, we're changing quite rapidly um, that we started seeing huge companies dominate nationally, uh, bringing together all sorts of different industries and tools, um, and obviously, therefore, forming oligarchies or monopolies. Um, so this sounds relatively straightforward as a political crisis of a kind, of a social problem of a kind, certainly of an economic change. Why do you argue in the book that this period and these changes also represent a constitutional crisis? Well, we, it, it, to be clear, we, we, <laughs> we are in this, in this section of the book in, in first and foremost historians, and we're, we're not 
arguing this was a constitutional crisis in the sense that um, looking back, we can see that that our own conception of constitutional um, order was was upended. We're reporting that contemporaries saw this these developments, roughly the emergence of corporate capitalism as a constitutional crisis, that that's how they spoke and thought. And um, it's plain as day that they thought about the um, rise of, of what they called trusts, which roughly covered more than, than the technical meaning of a, of, a, of a trust, but also big corporations more broadly, as a constitutional crisis. They thought, um, and here we have to, again, talk about the complexities of many different rea- you know, movements and bo- currents of thought responding to the rise of corporate capitalism. And to be sure, some thought the rise of corporate capitalism um, was a mark of national progress and that the corporations um, indeed warranted various kinds of constitutional protections. So we're saying that the tradition that we're chronicling um, saw the rise of the big corporation as a constitutional crisis. And in this case, it was a tradition that in various ways spanned um, quite radical labor and agrarian movements all the way to mainstream um, reconstruction bred Republicans who um, continued to nurse various classical liberal ideas or liberal Republican ideas about what the Constitution entailed in terms of equal opportunity and equal rights. So Senator Sherman, for example, not a radical, but a mainstream Republican and the sponsor of the foundational Sherman Act, which is the U.S.'s first national antitrust law, um, spoke about the emergence of the big corporation as a constitutional crisis because it undercut equal rights in the um, pursuit of livelihoods in industrial America. And the more radical versions of the tradition would say that the emergence of a permanent class of wage laborers and of wage labor as the predominant form of working class livelihoods was itself right in conflict with the Republican precepts of the Constitution. Yeah, so I'll just add, building on that, that you know one one reason why people at the time thought this was a constitutional crisis was because they shared the view of their forebears that you needed a Republican political economy, but where kind of Jefferson and you know, Jackson imagined that what that looked like was a lot of small farmers who owned their land. If that wasn't going to be possible, and instead it was going to be a nation of lots of wage earners in cities, we had to sort of rethink what that meant for the foundations of Republican government. That is, how are you going to have a country of wage earners who are nonetheless, even if they're not owning property, they're going to be, um, they're going to have enough economic and political clout to challenge these emerging um, kind of massive concentrations of economic and political power. Uh, so that's that's part of it. And I'll also add a, a note about the courts, which is that part of why some of the fights of this era became constitutional crises 
was because the Supreme Court was um, coming into its own as a powerful political force in American life. It was intervening. It was it was it was uh, injecting itself, um, or you know, sort of allowing litigants to inject constitutional law into all kinds of. Uh, fights, especially courts were very aggressively acting against unions and labor organizing. Um, courts were striking down legislation like the first income tax that was imposed in this period. Um, we talk about the way that the Supreme Court striking that down ends up galvanizing a kind of constitutional politics against the court um, in which people start talking in regular politics about the need to rein in this this court that's coming around imposing its laissez-faire economic vision on everyone else. Yeah, it's 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 often the case in the story in this kind of long and winding tale that if you want we have the court in its um plutocratic and reactionary ways, um, abandoning some of the classic liberal sort of elements that frowned themselves frowned on big corporate capital um, and abandoning much common law that, that was aimed directly against big capital um, in favor of, in the, in, with the specter of you know, heightened class violence and class conflict in the U.S. and a burgeoning movement for both redistribution through legislation and redistribution through broad labor actions on the ground, the court becomes the sort of where the ruling class of the United States goes to rule. And in cases, for example, um, the whole sphere of industrial relations and the labor contract and the allowable limits of strikes and boycotts, not simply in judge-made common law doctrine, but in constitutional doctrine, so that it, these harsh judicial limits against broad strikes and broad boycotts or a strong labor movement on the ground and these judicial limits against um, reform legislation are all right become right encased in constitutional law, which is, which is quite remarkable. The idea that repressing strikes and unleashing state troops and federal troops on strikers was something that flowed out of the Constitution is is kind of flabbergasting even for our students today who certainly are witnessing a Supreme Court which is reviving um, self consciously so many elements of the constitutional order that the courts built in the period we're talking about now. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you both for explaining. Um, in the interests of continuing through the book, so that we get at least a taste of each of the sections that you chronicle as historians. Um, moving on then to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal following the Great Depression. Um, you argue in the book, you show in the book, that his reforms were quite significant for being anti-oligarchy, um, but that this, this sort of thrust of the reforms was quite contested at the time. What do you think are the key impacts from those innovations against oligarchy, but also the key impacts from the pushback? Well, I'll just start with a, a quick framing comment, and I'm sure Willie will have more to say about this, that 
you know, part of what what's interesting to us when we look at the New Deal through the lens of this book, through thinking about constitutional political economy, is that there's a understanding of the New Deal that is universally taught in law schools today and that lawyers have sort of internalized, which is that in the New Deal, the Supreme Court that struck down some initial important New Deal legislation um, the Supreme Court then backed off uh, and said that the the later New Deal laws could go ahead and that there would now be much more federal power to regulate the national economy and pull the United States out of the depression. The way that we tell that story in law schools is that there was a New Deal settlement that economic questions were going to be off the table in constitutional law. And instead, constitutional law would come to be about other things like maybe free speech and, you know, other new ideas that are coming in as central constitutional battlegrounds. We uh, argue in the book that this understanding is not really true to how things were argued at the time, that the New Dealers had a constitutional vision. They weren't saying just, court, you know, the Constitution should... should um, not have anything to say about economic matters. They actually thought quite in line with the democracy of opportunity tradition we're sketching from earlier eras that the constitution required the building up of labor law and uh, various aspects of national government necessary to drag the United States, which was now a national economy out of its uh, depression. And I think the um, the arguments that they made about what was constitutionally necessary, these these didn't get into some of the court decisions that we're teaching our students, you know, because the courts, which were very conservative, just were willing ultimately to back off, but not embrace New Deal political economy claims. Um, and so, if you just read the court opinions you're left with this impression that sort of is a bit uh, hands-off economic matters. But if you listen to what the New Dealers were themselves saying, um, you start to get a, a different and richer picture of their constitutional thought. And and then the only other thing that I'll say about, about this is that the um, conservatives never really agreed to a New Deal settlement either. They just... Um, uh, realized that the courts had been, you know, taken over by uh, appointees of FDR, and so it was no longer quite the right venue. But they continued to fight the New Deal for decades. Right. So they, the the um, the kind of business elites and um, the conservative portions of the Republican Party, as they re- regained power in the in the through latter half of the 1940s um, enacted the Taft-Hartley Act um, as a full-on constitutional redemption of the constitutional calamities as they saw it that were ushered in with the Wagner Act or the National Labor Relations Act. So one had these dueling constitutional statutes as their champions saw them, right? That that the New Dealers saw the landmark laws of the of the New Deal, both the ones the court struck down and 
and the ones that that endured after the court stepped back um, as as rights bearing statutes that enacted um, new kinds of freedoms, famously freedom of collective action, freedom from not just state repression, but from private capitalists repression of workers' rights to organize, strike, form unions, collectively bargain. Um, All this had a thick constitutional dimension um, that both sides saw. But as Joey said, the New Dealers um, chose to defend the Wagner Act not as the vindication of a of an alternative heterodox radical vision of what these 13th, what these various amendments, first, 13th, 14th, all stood for, but simply as something Congress had the power to do under the Commerce Act. And, and so the constitutional battle didn't end, but it shifted scene, sites and scenes. And, and Taft-Hartley was a, a, was a major defeat um, for this New Deal political economy. I think you also sort of were, were inviting us to mention some of the shortcomings of the New Deal and how they in turn um, contributed to predicaments then and today. And famously, at least for U.S. historians, the, the, the great shortcoming of the New Deal was that it was crafted largely to exclude African-Americans or, or more precisely to exclude the black labor of the South. And, and that was because Roosevelt felt he had no choice but to accommodate the powerful Southern wing of the Democratic Party if he wanted to enact New Deal legislation at all. But the upshot was to exclude black labor. And and, um, only belatedly did Roosevelt make some efforts and the the more radical Northern New Dealers also to push back against the Dixiecrats, push back against Jim Crow and disenfranchisement. But it was too little, too late. Hmm. Anything you want to add to that? No, this is great. This is great. You've got... Glad. I'm glad you think so too. Um, So thank you then for explaining and starting to draw us towards things that impact us directly today, um, because that does come up as we go more through the chronology of the book. Um, And so I want to talk about one of those instances that you bring up, which is the example of Montana, which you talk about how both in the progressive era and then in 2012, quite recently, um, and you argue that this example exemplifies um, the way in which our understanding of constitutional debates around political economy have changed. What do we need to know about Montana in this sense? Well, so so the story that we're telling that you're highlighting, I appreciate you're pulling out this one. Uh, it's an interesting sort of episode. Is in the West the move in the progressive uh, sort of populist and then progressive era toward direct democracy reforms had a lot to do with reining in the power of giant corporations that in states like Montana, thinly populated, really mining centered economy. And there was one mining corporation that controlled most of the uh, economy and also had bought most of the politicians of the state. So through incredible efforts, (laughs) uh, somehow the people of Montana managed to enact amendments to the state constitution that allow for direct democracy, that is 
direct popular initiatives that would bypass their corrupt legislature. And one of the first ways they use this tool is to enact a Corrupt Practices Act, which prohibits all kinds of of, uh, things that they thought were sustaining the the stranglehold that this one corporation had on their politics, which they thought was incompatible with Republican government. And one of the things that the Montana Corrupt Practices Act did was it said that corporations can't go directly spend money on political campaigns. Okay. This was enacted in some other states too. It was a pretty common feature at that time of these kinds of corrupt practices acts. And the people who enacted it thought that the Constitution demanded it. They thought that the Republican form of government was incompatible with having this much power in one mining corporation. And so we needed legislation like this. The Constitution was impelling the legislation. A hundred years later, we're in a different, more court-centered constitutional era where when you think of a constitutional argument, what you think of is, the court is striking something down. (laughs) It's striking down legislation, maybe federal, maybe state. And in the famous Citizens United case in uh, 2010, the, the U.S. Supreme Court said, well, the First Amendment requires that we give freedom of speech to anyone, which would include corporations, to go spend money in, in on political advocacy as they wish. And so in 2012, 100 years after Montana had enacted this law that they thought was constitutionally compelled, the Supreme Court unanimously, because they'd kind of already decided Citizens United, they said, look, it just follows from our case that this law from 100 years ago is incompatible with the First Amendment. So the Constitution strikes it down. And it's we think that this this sort of um, these bookends to the story of this of this particular uh, act are just so illustrative of the different constitutional world that we live in now from the one that was there a hundred years ago when a um, hundred years ago it was politicians in legislatures who were invoking these constitutional arguments about Republican government and today it's much more common to just view it as the Constitution is only for courts to enforce. And what do courts do? They um, protect rights that are interpreted from the Constitution, like the First Amendment, and they're going to use it to strike down a law like this um, without regard to the arguments that no longer quite make sense to us, which is a part of why we wrote this book, to get them out there. The arguments that were the old arguments that legislation like this Corrupt Practices Act is constitutionally necessary um, and that that's the right question to ask, or at least an important question to ask, not just the kind of modern question, which is, does this legislation violate some constitutional guarantee? That makes a lot of sense. Um, I, I, I personally found the example of Montana to really kind of clarify a lot of these issues in a practical sense, um, which is why I wanted to make sure our listeners got to hear about it as well. Um, so I'm really glad that you included that in the book. Um, yeah, I would just, you know, to, to sort of put a, you know, again, a present day point on it. The Citizens United case, which is obviously the, the much more well-known one, um, enrages, I think, pretty large majorities of Americans. Um, and the Citizens United, which says that corporations can 
right, somewhat simplified, can spend as much money as they please on political campaigns, notwithstanding that corporations um, are enormously powerful political actors, hardly comparable to ordinary citizens. So the, the idea that the First Amendment gives corporations this kind of freedom um, to overwhelm the polity uh, rubs against the grain, but precious few um, Americans and indeed precious few sort of um, academics and lawyers are, you know, sort of still aware of a tradition of thought that says the, the moral intuition that this is this can't be right was at one time a very clear and robust constitutional principle. And that principle is so forgotten, it doesn't even find its way into the dissents in these cases. In other words, dissents are meant are where you mentally look in our court-centered universe for rival constitutional visions. And part of what our book is about is saying, this is a vision that speaks to so many of the issues of the day, and yet it doesn't even find its way into the dissents. And so this brings me perfectly to my next question, which is what was the quote, great forgetting? And you've already inferred some of the problems that that has caused for liberals and progressives since, that these arguments are forgotten. But can you tell us more about this? Uh, I'll let Joey start. Okay. Well, either way. So, so what we're calling the great forgetting is basically the question, the, the tradition that we have been tracing for the first, you know, two thirds of the book from the founding through the new deal seems to disappear around World War II and the post-war years. I mean, it doesn't completely disappear, but it really recedes from liberal and progressive politics in a way that is surprising um, to us once we've really, you know, spent all this time reading and and learning about what happened in the um, decades before. And so our story is kind of an attempt to reconstruct, well, you know, what happened? Why did this tradition go into eclipse? Why was it seemingly forgotten or if not forgotten, at least uh, it stopped being used as much. And we have two different stories about this. One story is about liberal attitudes about the court. And I use the word liberal here rather than kind of progressive. This is the emergence of a post-war liberal set of ideals that were forged in part by uh, the way that the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board of Education intervened dramatically in the racial um, dynamics of the South. Before the civil rights movement even was really going, the Supreme Court emerged as this powerful uh, national force promoting racial inclusion in a way that Northern liberals thought um, was right and was necessary, at least with regard to the South. Things may be a little more complicated in the North. Um, and the liberal reaction to, well, the, so the Southern reaction famously was massive resistance, lots of arguments that the Supreme Court didn't really have any authority over them, arguments that that they, the Southern whites, ought to have just as much of a role in interpreting the Constitution as did the Supreme Court. And so 
liberals in opposition to that Southern opposition, uh, liberals started to take the view that no, the Supreme Court is there to decide what the Constitution means, and you have to obey it. They are kind of first, last, and only uh, authority over the meaning of the Constitution, and so stop resisting them. That is a very different orientation toward the court than any that progressives from a few decades earlier would have recognized. And in fact, I think they would have found it was crazy that liberals and and what's so interesting is some of these are the same people, you know, uh, like former progressives who now late in their careers had become uh, post-war liberals and viewed the Constitution um, as something that it was just important to leave to the authority of the court and the court would get it right. And this was the Warren court era. Courts were doing a lot of liberal things that seemed to liberals to make sense. The other thread of the story um, that we think is centrally important to why the tradition that we're interested in the book goes into eclipse is uh, is this sort of disappearance of political economy itself as a way of thinking uh, and its replacement by economics, which was on the rise really throughout the 20th century. But by this point in the mid 20th century, emerges as a, a new, more scientific way of thinking about all of the questions that we now understand as economic questions. Um, from wages and prices and economic growth to, uh, you know, even some questions about taxation, although maybe not so much about distribution. And um, the rise of economics and of a more kind of technocratic perspective on economic management leads to a sidelining of some of the old big political economy questions of earlier eras, like how much power should capital have versus labor and those sorts of questions. And, and also, I think it's important that, you know, this era, this post-war moment is the height of the Cold War and on the American kind of broad center left, there's a lot of purging and denouncing of communists and socialists who are too close to communists and so on. And that leads to a kind of, um, that leads to that, that mainstream liberal group pushing out and silencing the leftier voices that might have still been making political economy arguments. And, and so we end up in this, in this, uh, post-war world that I think we're now still largely living in, although very recently, maybe not as much, where uh, economics is basically for technocrats. Uh, that is, we have separated economics from politics. And meanwhile, constitutional law is also separate from politics. It's for experts um, on the Supreme Court, the judges and lawyers. And so uh, when you take those things out of politics that were previously so central to politics, um, both economic, political economy questions, and then also uh, questions of constitutional law, what you um, end up with is a liberalism that uh, is much narrower and less capable of really engaging in constitutional political economy arguments than the the progressivism that that came before 
And what accounts for the people that I, I suppose are I'm, I'm most interested from that answer of the people that changed, the, the people themselves who were progressives and now became liberals? What accounts they, for that sort of shift? They were hounded is, is one. If, if we're talking about the people, literally that sort of generation who were young um, New Dealers and became middle-aged and older um, great society liberals, um, I think the simple answer is they either had to renounce their socialist leanings or they would be marginalized and not enjoy important places in government and, and elsewhere. Mm. I, do I think, think over time... Also- if one wants to give a more nuanced answer, and we're, we're, we're talking with historians here, so nuance is all. Um, over time, they also came to believe that a certain more technocratic, more business-oriented Keynesianism in which growing the pie was the answer to any distributional issues that lingered into the um, great society, um, that growing the pie and not um, redistributing wealth was the answer. So tax cuts could be a measure that was good for the middle class. Um, and and it was uh, left to, um, and that, that, that there was a very powerful pull because the, the sort of business-oriented Keynesians were technically very sophisticated and um, and did have, you know, some analytic purchase on the economy, not nearly as much as they thought and not enough to, to, to sort of anticipate important things that, that the old New Dealers and the left um, and more left-leaning economists and thinkers in general, like Martin Luther King and Bayard Rustin and many black leaders already saw, for example, that unless um, government did more than um, fiddle with um the interest rate and did more than was conventional in the Federal Reserve, um, but actually began uh, that that public investments and job creation were essential to actually make good on the promise of um, decent livelihoods uh, or what the March on Washington in 63 called jobs and freedom. So there were there were those who continued to to think more in terms of the kind of New Deal political economy discourse of the 30s and early 40s into the 60s, but they, they were right not in the, <coughs> the corridors of power. Got it. Joey, did you want to add something to that answer? No, I, I think that's great. And I think that's that's really true to our story. And I'll just add, there's another group of people who who flip their positions. And I think it is is also kind of in response to events, um, which is there were, uh, there were some members of Congress. We, you know, we had some research assistants like dig up, let's find the actual people who were in Congress during some of the new deal fights with the court and then are still there, you know, in the, in the post-war years to be, to be, uh, on the other side of the arguments. One of the, one of the striking things is that there are members of Congress who were advocates of, um, you know, reigning in the court, even if they weren't necessarily all willing to go all the way to to FDR's court packing plan, they were on board with the spirit of using legislation to fight the court's bad political economy decisions 
in the in the New Deal era, who then by the time it's the, uh, you know, uh, Brown era and there's Southern massive resistance and there's a Cold War, they become much more invested in protecting the authority of the court. And I think, you know, um, it, nobody has to be consistent throughout their career. I think events convinced them that it was important to invest the court, which now was entirely stocked with, you know, appointees of their party, uh, with more authority over over constitutional law. And so in that way, they they moved. But um, but I think in the book, partly we think many of them were uh, were a bit more right the first time. Interesting. Um, and so we've talked obviously about the theory, the history, the examples throughout that period and how that links now to what we have today. Um, and so in your book's final chapter, you go the next step and you imagine what the future could look like um, and ways of thinking about political economy and the constitution going forward. Um, you, of course, don't write every single possible way that could happen. That would be definitely its own book, if not multiple books. Um, But you do illustrate three particular examples in this section. The first is the challenges of contesting the First Amendment and campaign finance reform. Eliminating structural racism is the second. And antitrust and corporate governance is the third. Perhaps just picking one of those, could you explain how rethinking that issue through this lens of political economy you've been discussing would change how these things might be debated or thought about going forward? You know, since you earlier brought up the Montana story, I think one natural place to go here is your First Amendment example, um, because it really does seem to us striking that even the dissents from the Supreme Court's current deregulatory, um, you know, jihad against campaign finance laws, even the dissents don't argue, as we think they ought to argue, and maybe in the future should revive the argument that the Constitution actually requires some regulation of the political system to ensure that political power is broadly distributed among the people rather than concentrated in the hands of the rich. And this idea, which would have been so familiar to constitutional you know, debates for most of American history, today it's not there. Um, and it's not there even in the dissents. And uh, you know, as Congress f- tries to think through, and state legislatures uh, try to think through how to build uh, a um, political system that can survive as a Republican government, um, this onslaught of Supreme Court decisions protecting the political power of the most powerful, um, you know, we think that legislators should take up these arguments, whether, whether courts are interested in them or not, um, and that legislators should find ways both to kind of pick through what the courts still allow. We talk in the book about things that Congress can enact now, but also um, ways of confronting the court and and uh, strategies for political constitutional conflict with the court. Um, and, you know, we think that if legislators had in view the tradition that we're sketching in the book, they would feel 
uh, empowered to make the argument that the Constitution requires uh, some reforms in this area. And and also, um, you know, by the same token in labor law, where where the First Amendment, I don't know if Willie wants to say more about that, where, where the First Amendment is also um, uh, acting now as a kind of sword on behalf of the side of the fights about constitutional political economy that wants to uh, empower capital rather than labor. Yep. Yeah, both the First Amendment and the takings clause of late are are being used by this court to hobble um, an already embattled U.S. labor movement and much as Joey said in respect of the campaign finance decisions, even the dissents in these important labor versus the First Amendment cases don't point out that there is a you know, very long, robust tradition on the other side that says that the very measures that the court's striking down are, are not simply allowable under the First Amendment um, or allowable under the takings clause, but in, impelled in virtue of, a, of an understanding of, of the First Amendment and other constitutional provisions that imbued, um, you know, our landmark labor legislation. So, so it's, it's the, the, the difference may be there that the kinds of battles that may unfold um, over the next decades will also involve illegal strikes on the part of workers, because the current labor law is so um, repressive, and there too having a an understanding that 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 one isn't simply doing the right thing morally, but that a kind of robust understanding of the Constitution over time held that what what one one is doing is constitutionally protected will be, as it has been in the past for lots of movements, including labor, an important emboldening aspect of the discourse surrounding strikes, but the whole enterprise of putting these ideas back on the table, um, it, as Joey says, is, is, is also about emboldening politicians, lawmakers, citizens to, to defy the court and push back against the court. Um, and, and how far that goes and what particularly strategies makes sense um, all depends on 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 how large and strong the numbers are on the side of, of pushing back against the court and different and, and different contexts demand different strategies and different futures will demand different strategies. Roosevelt after all used his court packing plan to threaten a court at a moment when he'd won overwhelming majorities in both houses of of Congress and so it was more, plausible to to think that that kind of very stark confrontation um, might intimidate a court because the court knew Thank the strength, for, strength of Roosevelt's um, support. Explaining that and We're again, not bringing in that your moment right now. From the realm of history into the present, all of this is quite linked, which I think the book does a very good job of demonstrating. Um, now that we've sort of done a, obviously, a high-level tour of the book, 
Um, you both were very much in the details of this, even obviously reading the book is more detailed than listening to the podcast, but you both had to write it and really invest in all these little details. Um, so I was wondering if at some process in the research or writing of this book, if either of you came across something or realized something or noticed something that um, surprised you, it uh, could be something big or small, something that did or did not make it into the final book. Um, but I think it's quite interesting to hear the sort of behind the scenes of research processes. I mean, I'll give you one that that maybe uh, is just is just uh, was surprising to me because I was the the part of this collaboration that didn't know as much about labor history, <laughs> uh, but and I learned a ton from from Willie about many aspects of of different. Uh, parts of the story that's in this book uh, in every chapter. But but one piece that I really found surprising was um, the uh, sort of late 19th and early 20th century injunctions and other legal attacks that courts were um, using to block labor organizing. Because what was striking to me, the thing that was surprising was it wasn't just sort of, we don't think there's a right to organize in the constitution. It was, it was um, we're going to come up with uh, innovative and very, you know, various tools, uh, some of which almost suggest that employers have a property interest in their workers kind of coming to work that is being violated by efforts to organize against them. It was just the kind of uh, way that courts were making sometimes constitutional, sometimes seemingly kind of common law, but maybe constitutional and common law arguments that um, they really had a result in mind. And the result was that the workers are going to jail. And that was was um, it just came through uh, in that material in a way that I uh, that, that took me back because I didn't know that history before uh, how much those old courts really wore their political economy views on their on their sleeve um, mm. in that area when it came to to enjoining early uh, labor organizing. Wonderful. Thank you. Willie, do you have something? Yeah, I would. My, mine is um, quite simple. That the phrase "olig" the word, excuse me, "oligarchy" um, was one that sort of we saw in some of the very materials from the early Republic, um, and that resonated for us as capturing what we were beginning to think about way back. Um, in 2012, 2013. Um, but we didn't know, or I didn't know, I don't think Joey did either, just how central that word um, was through this long um, unwinding, you know, you know, sort of this long sort of tradition that carried forward into the um, anti-slavery crusade. We didn't anticipate how central the word oligarchy to capture the form of government that anti-slavery um, forces saw in the South 
um, and then how it carried forward. We, I knew, of course, that Brandeis used the phrase to talk about um, the corporate elite, but I didn't know how pervasive oligarchy was as a rubric for um, a form of government that threatened the Constitution. Um, and it was only it was only sort of you know midway through the book that we began to see important pop political figures like Bernie Sanders use the phrase yeah, that again. That was a so wonderful surprise the, when the when title really sort of we, um, we realized was better we than could we knew. Cite at the beginning of the of the intro, you know, people are campaigning now on this. <laughs> that was you know we were halfway through our work on the book by the time that began. So that was that was uh, surprising and great. Well, in fact, I'm sort of glad you said that because um, obviously I choose the books uh, based off of mostly the title and the blurb. Um, obviously, I've not read them yet. And I sort of assumed that this oligarchy title, this was going to be very much sort of an argument, an angle. Like, well, if you read history through this particular lens, um, and I was like, okay, that sounds really interesting. And so I was quite fascinated to see in the history as you chronicle it that you're not digging to find these references. They're really right there. This is exactly what the conversation was. Um, these were the terms that were being used. Um, it isn't sort of, if you tilt your head and squint, it, the conversation suddenly about oligarchy. Um, and I found that as a reader really quite surprising, um, though I'm not an expert in this particular area. So I sort of feel a little bit vindicated that that was also a bit of a surprise to you both as well. Yeah, no, it was, and I and I really I appreciate your your reaction to the book. It's it's a it's a funny book in that um, some of what we do is you know really original historical research, but a lot of it a lot of it is is we're bringing together things people actually said that you could find an article somewhere that has already quoted it, and we cite that article. You know, like there's it's a funny kind of book where where part of what we're doing is trying to bring forward the weight of this of the evidence that this tradition really uh, existed in the robust way that we're suggesting it did and that requires a lot of showing uh, rather than you know summarizing and telling the reader we, we thought we needed to do quite a lot of showing you the quotes and showing you some of the uh, the the ways that the debate was actually being conducted because it's so different from today. And because it's so unfamiliar, people are kind of primed to say, well, that wasn't really, that wasn't really how this, this could have been. This must be just a kind of contemporary gloss on what was there. And I think part of why the book has ended up, you know, being, uh, not a short book uh, is that is that we wanted readers to be able to have that reaction that you had, which is, oh, I see, this actually was right there on the surface mm -hmm. of a lot of these conversations uh, throughout. Yeah, that was very much my reaction. Um, so it, it it's nice to kind of hear that that was part of the experience as well. I want, I, if I may, I just want to underscore one thing that that Joey said, which is important to underline. And that is, it isn't at the end of the day, chiefly an archival book at all. It builds and draws on the work yeah. of other historians and, and much of what we learned, um, we learned from them so that 
much more than a monographic book. This one is deeply in debt to the work of many other constitutional historians who are um, gripped by some of the same concerns and struck by some of the same forgotten um, discourses that we are. And it's it's been well, you know a speaking of work a privilege um, to be able to synthesize a lot of and as we all mentioned it is not a small book um, nor is it lacking in detail so it does feel mildly unfair to be asking you this um, but the book is out now so what are you each working on now or next? Well, we've got some we've got some projects together and some separately. Together, we're writing right now. There's just sort of some some short uh, pieces coming out of the book, including we're excited to be in some conversations that you'll be able to read. Uh, discussing this book, it, the Boston Review is doing one, and there'll be one on uh, the blog Vulcanization, and another on the Law and Political Economy blog. So we're immediately doing some writing for those. Um, and then, um, I know we each have some, some future projects, uh, that are also, I'm working on one about, um, representation and in particular, uh, how we count the people for our, uh, political districting in the United States, whether we count all the people or just the voters, and I'm also working on one maybe closer to this book um, that has to do with uh, partisan constitutional uh, argument. Like uh, one of the things that I that I learned from the book and that, it's been, that I've been thinking about since, and I think we've both been thinking about, is uh, the way that sometimes constitutional arguments are, are made by political parties. Mm. Fascinating. I'm doing, um, returning to some, some work that is more archival um, or even more archival than, than, than this. And that's, um, that's a sort of long history of, of, of Jewish lawyers, transnational Jewish lawyering around Jewish politics in the um, late 19th and early 20th century, sort of battles over what it would mean to be both Jewish and American and battles over group rights versus individual rights, pluralism versus liberalism. Um, so a, a, a study of, of lawyering um, in, the, in this context. And, uh, well, and, then, and then another um, set of essays about socialism project, and constitutionalism. Listeners can read your current book, which again is titled The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy, published by Harvard University Press in 2022. Dr. Joey Fishkin, Dr. Willie Forbath, thank you both very much for being on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure. This is great discussion. Thank you very much, Miranda. <laughs>